Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content is included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Is there anything better than a day in the park? I can think of a few things, but on the whole, no, no. Central Park is pretty much tops. And this day is absolutely gorgeous. I could just spread out on the lawns and just relax for days. As tantalizing as that sounds, we should probably keep moving so we can make it home in time to change and make it down to the O'Neill for our show. I know, I know. Just take a moment to take it in. I mean, the trees, the sounds, even that bridge over there looks so pristine. Do you recognize that bridge, right? That's the Grayshot Bridge. Okay. Is this another one of your New York City history moments? No, 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 no. That's the bridge the acapella group Range sang the Song of Purple Summer for their Tony nominee video back in 2016. Oh! That was a pretty cool video. And an epic year of theater, too. I didn't realize that was the same bridge. I guess it's just dumb luck that we stumbled on that, given tonight. Fate. The universe has a plan. Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the groundbreaking show, Spring Awakening. So hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. And for today, let us welcome you back all the way to 2007 as we delve into the controversial and game-changing show, Spring Awakening. This show burst onto the scene with angst and fervor that Broadway didn't know what hit it or what to make of it. But everyone knew one thing for sure. This show raised the bar on the modern musical and was going to be a smash. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the beginning. Way back. The show is based on the 1891 German play of the same name by Frank Wendekind. It is the first major play and a huge foundational piece of modern theater history. The team that would come together to form the musical we now know would be as follows. The music was done by Duncan Sheik. Book and lyrics by Stephen Sater, sets by Christine Jones, costumes by Susan Hilferty, lights by Kevin Adams, and sound by Brian Ronan. The choreography was by Bill T. Jones, and mixing all the elements together was the director, Michael Mayer. The show had many workshops, concerts, and rewrites for seven years before becoming the show we now know it. The show had off-Broadway workshops and concerts at the La Jolla Playhouse, Roundabout Theatre Company, and even Lincoln Center. 
The musical finally arrived on Broadway at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, opening on December 10th, 2006. The show would continue to play there for 859 performances until January 18th, 2009. The show would pick up 11 Tony nominations that year. By the end of that evening, it would walk away with eight. One for Best Musical, Best Original Score for Seder and Chic, Best Orchestrations, Best Lighting Design, Best Feature Actor in a Musical for John Gallagher Jr., Best Direction of a Musical for Michael, Michael Mayer, Best Choreography for Bill T. Jones, and Best Book of a Musical for Stephen Sater. The show would also go on to win the 2008 Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album. So, with all that, let's get into the bitch of living. starts with Wendela Bergman, an adolescent in 19th century Germany who laments that her mother has given her no way to handle things and has failed her by not giving her the lessons that she needs to learn. She tells her mother that it is time that she learns where babies come from because she is about to become an aunt for the second time. Her mother cannot bring herself to explain the facts of conception in a clear manner to her daughter. Instead, she tells Vendela that a child is conceived when a woman loves her husband with all her heart. We see that there are other young girls, just like Vendela, that are all similarly innocent and are upset with the lack of knowledge of the world presented to them. At school, some teenage boys are studying Virgil in Latin class. A very nervous and intense boy, Mort Stiefel, sleepily misquotes a line, and the teacher chastises him harshly. Moritz's classmate, rebellious and intelligent Melchior Gabor, tries to defend him, but the teacher is having none of it and hits Melchior with a stick. Brooding, Melchior reflects on the shallow, narrow-mindedness of the school and the society he lives in and expresses his intent to change things in, a song, in the song All That's Known. Moritz begins to describe a dream that has been keeping him up at night, and Melchior realizes that Moritz has been having dreams of an erotic nature. Melchior tries to comfort a panicked Moritz by telling him that all of the boys their age get these kind of dreams. Melchior has his, this knowledge because he has learned sexual information from books. The burnt-out boys tell their own frustrating thoughts and desires. Moritz, who is not comfortable talking about the subject with Melchior, insists the boys and the girls express their desires for physical intimacy. Vendela stumbles upon Melchior while walking through the woods, and the two of them share a moment while sitting in front of a tree together. Each of them considers what it would be like to give into their physical desires, but they do not give in. Meanwhile at school, Moritz is thrilled to learn that he has passed his midterm exams, but the teacher and the schoolmaster cannot pass everyone, so they decide to fail Moritz. Marta, one of the teenage girls, accidentally admits to her friends that her father physically abuses her, including sexual abuse, and that her mother is either oblivious or doesn't care. 
The other girls are horrified to hear this, but Marta makes them promise not to tell anyone. She does not want to end up like Ilsa, a friend from childhood who is now homeless and wanders aimlessly because her parents kicked her out of the house. Later, Vendela finds Melchior at his spot in the woods and tells him that her father regularly abuses one of her friends. Melchior is appalled to hear this, but Vendela convinces him to hit her with a switch so that she can understand her friend's pain. Melchior reluctantly complies, but gets carried away and throws her to the ground. He rounds off disgusted with himself, and she weeps curled up on the ground. Alone, Vendela finds that Melchior has left his journal on the ground. She picks it up and takes it with her. Moritz, having failed his final exam is confronted by his father, who reacts to the news with disdain and contempt and tells his son that he will not progress in school. Moritz writes to Melchior's mother, his only adult friend, for money to flee to America. She is tender in her response, but firmly denies his request and promises to write to his parents to discourage them from being too hard on him. In a stuffy hayloft during a storm, Melchior considers his own frustration at being caught between childhood and adulthood. Vendela finds him and tells him she wanted to return his journal. Each awkwardly apologizes for what happened the last time they met. Before long, they begin to kiss. Vendela resists his advances at first, although she is uncertain of how far she wants to take their physical relationship. They begin to have sex as the lights go down. And that's the end of Act 1. <clears throat> Act 2 begins with Vendela and Melchior finishing their moment of intimacy in the hayloft. They reflect and discuss about what just happened. Moritz, having been thrown out of his home, wanders the town at dusk, carrying a pistol. He happens upon the free-spirited Ilsa, who has found refuge at an artist colony, and invites him to join her by sharing in some childhood memories and perhaps something more, but Moritz refuses. After she leaves, he calls after her, but it's too late. She's gone. Regretting his lost opportunity to follow Ilsa, and believing that he has nowhere else to turn, Moritz shoots himself. At Moritz's funeral, each of his friends drop a flower into his grave, and Melchior chastises Moritz's father for being so cruel to his friend. The other students look at Mort's father with disgust for pushing Mort's too hard when he was alive. Back at school, the schoolmaster and the teacher inform Melchior that Mort's parents found the sex essay he had written for Mort's. They blame Melchior for his friend's suicide, although Melchior knows that he is not to blame. He knows there is nothing he can do to fight them, and he is expelled. Elsewhere that night, Hanshin sets up with his shy and delicate classmate, Ernst. Hanshin shares his pragmatic outlook on life with his classmate, um, being seduced, uh, excuse me, with his classmate while seducing him. This is Ernst's first sexual experience, and he tells Hanshin that he loves him as the two share a passionate kiss. Vendela, meanwhile, has become ill, and her mother takes her to visit the doctor. He gives her some medication and assures them both that Vendela is suffering from anemia and will be fine. But he then takes Vendela's mother aside and tells her that Vendela is pregnant. 
When her mother confronts her with this information, Vendela is completely shocked, not understanding how this could have happened. She realized that her mother lied to her about how babies are made. Although she berates her mother for leaving her ignorant, her mother rejects the guilt and insists Vendela tell her who the father is. Vendela reluctantly surrenders a passionate note that Melchior sent her after they, they consummated their relationship. She reflects somberly of her current condition and the circumstances that led to this difficult position, but ends with optimism about her future child. Meanwhile, Melchior's parents argue about their son's fate. His mother does not believe that the essay he wrote for Moritz is a sufficient reason to send him away to a reform school. She changes her mind when her husband informs her of Vendela's pregnancy, but says they must send Melchior away without telling him that Vendela is pregnant. At the reform school, Melchior gets into a fight with some boys who grab a letter he has just received from Vendela, who use it in a masturbation game. As one of the boys reads the letter, Melchior finally learns about Vendela and their child, and he escapes from the institution to find her. What he doesn't know is that Vendela's mother has already taken her daughter to an underground practitioner to have an abortion. When he reaches town, he sends a message to Vendela's friends to have her meet him at the cemetery at midnight. While there, he stumbles across Moritz's grave and swears to himself that he and Vendela will raise the child in a compassionate and open environment. Spotting a freshly dug grave, Melchior discovers that Vendela has died from her abortion. Overwhelmed by shock and grief, he takes out a razor with the intention of killing himself. Moritz's and Wendela's spirits rise from their graves to offer him their strength. They persuade him to journey on, and he resolves to live and to carry their memories with him forever. Ilsa leads everyone on stage, and they sing the song of Purple Summer about life and home. The end. So let's dive into this show. It's um, a heavy one. It really is. And I mean, I know the material is controversial. It's important. It really is. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's ironic that we're, we're recording this show tonight because I literally was just having this conversation with my mom. Um, we were talking... And one of the things that we had talked about, about like, you know, how to fix culture and kids and that, one of the things I said is the best thing we can do for future generations is arm them with as much information as possible, including sex positivity. Rather than teaching abstinence, give them all the information they can so they understand things like obviously how sex works, but also like, you know, pregnancy and rape culture and things like that. Both of us went like grew up in our adolescence here in Utah, and we can both attest to the fact that like it's so taboo here, and there's so many people that kids that grow up that they they understand the 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 function of it, but they don't understand everything about it. 
and oh, then yeah. they get on the other side and we're all and then their parents would chastise them and it's like man if you just gave them the information well and that's the thing is I think this show really speaks to the fact that we should give everyone all the information and let them make their own choices as human beings like we're given the hardware but no one's passing on the user manual and especially how cruel it is that they know how to use it and deny that information absolutely you know um the other thing is is it's a coming of age story yeah but it's it's not like the wonder years or the leave it to beaver like this or luca yeah i mean i haven't seen luca i but i'm gonna believe you but the thing is is this isn't the tender, like, lighthearted thing. This is more like the gritty reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that, like, everything is dark throughout the entire show. But, I mean, at the same time, come on. How many of us are going to look back at our teenage years and be like, man, if I could go back to, like, one, five, or ten-year block of my life, man, that, you know, 12 see, to 22, man, that was it. That was just the best. See, and I, this this show has was a... Um, a mind opener for me because at least in my household, my parents raised me in a, you know, a information, a sex positive uh, kind of household. I don't think they, like, they wouldn't use those words to describe it, um, but they did because sex was never a taboo subject. It was there are appropriate times, there are appropriate circumstances, there are certain consequences for doing it. And so if you... But it wasn't like you're going to get banished if you have sex. Right. Or that like, oh, we just don't, we don't even sit. Like in my household, we didn't call it S-E-X. We called it sex. Right. You know, we, it making love. Like we didn't shy from the subject. But I remember, you know, a good friend of ours who after they got married, because they were raised very LDS- they didn't know these things. They didn't know how to go about it. And they were talking to me about advice for it because they're like, I don't, There's a lot I of don't know. That- well, or it's it's like, you know, you're raised in a religious household where you're like, don't have sex, it's bad. Don't have sex, it's bad. And then Suddenly you get married, you get married and, and, and it's like, it's okay, good. give us babies. And it's like, wait, I don't even, huh? All of a sudden I'm supposed to think that this is a good thing. Yeah, but for all my life shock. I've been told it's bad. Yeah. This show really showed how withholding information with keeping people in the dark can be such, such a terrible thing. And furthermore, trying to avoid the blame of your actions mm-hmm. or passing the buck can lead to even greater evils. You know, the fact that instead of bringing the child, in, and I'm not, this is not a stance on abortion, but instead of bringing the child into the world at that time, going to an unsafe practice you know abortion back then was not safe let's be real vendela mm-hmm. died instead of hearing out mort's side or recognizing how hard he worked being so hard and and, and beating him and whatnot he killed himself right you know? it was more important to save face for the community or the neighbors to create these illusions that oh everything's fine look at us following the social constructs rather than being like you know what yeah you my unwed daughter is pregnant how do I deal with that instead of like, what will the neighbors think? I have to hide it so no one knows. Or my husband is sexually assaulting my daughter. Yeah. Which, I mean. Let, and then I'm going to punish my daughter for being to too be fair, cute. None of this stuff has gone away. Let's be real. Let's acknowledge that. 
the plot uh, at the end of the day it's dark it's not disney-esque but it's a true version of life and what's funny is it's life depicted back you know what 18 what did i say in the opening 184 oh sorry guys we're just double checking our information um 1891. 1891 it's 1891 you know 130 years ago but here it is still relevant you know um, so I, I, there's that, you know, um, as we move on, moving on to the set, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. This wood just everywhere, this dark wood as well. Um, it was centered around like a schoolhouse looking mm-hmm. feel the entire time. Well, and the detail that they had in like the, the background. Yeah. With the frames and uh-huh. the, there was like lights behind the frame. Um, I'm going to get into more of this um, in the lighting, but it was really unique and different. Is this old versus new it, feel? It felt very much like that. Uh, Juxtaposition is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, the word the word I want to use to describe it is like it felt like very necromancy, and I know that's kind of the weird way, but I'm thinking like flowers with skulls. Like, you know what I mean? Like that feeling of like life and death sitting next to each other, uh-huh. which I really just loved how that played out in it. Well, exactly. And so, I mean, it had a great use of like a natural look and feeling, but, and, and again, we're just going to, let's just dive into the lights. Well, before we get into okay. the lights, I do want to say what I love is the chair that's sitting on the wall yes. that Melchior sits in. Later, later when he's in the institution. And he's observing yes. things. Yeah. Oh, that is well, one of my oh. favorite moments. And then also I want to mention um, there there are four set pieces that are truly iconic. It's the loft, the swing, the tree, and the graveyard. And they're all, but they all have like natural elements to them. And they, they really stand out among the school room look of the show. Um, I, those are four, like, I, I can see like the snapshots of those in my head still from the show when we saw it. You know, um, I, I want to jump around on our script because I want to go to the lights. Um, the lighting is brilliant. It's so ingenious. Um, you know, we have this really old story and the set, and it's kind of set in this original time, but the lighting is being done like a rock concert, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with vivid flashing and color, and the color palette with yellows and blues, you know. Um, so like you were saying, that background set, it's got a lot of just the, and it's mostly like square shapes, but they're all like background lit with these different colors. And then if you remember, there's bars of light too on the the back wall of the set and it's used at different times like uh, a lot of blue flooding the stage particularly from the black vermeer blue light and then you know when they do totally fucked or the bitch of living there's a lot of flashing totally fucked's got lots of flashing going on um what's the song i'm thinking of where there's a lot of yellow used um it's the the dark i know no yeah, the, the dark it, I know, and then uh, there's another I don't one. do sadness. I don't do sadness, yeah. Um, you know, so the lighting is just, oh, it's so good. It, it, it's well, it's it an really, extension of the story. Yes, because it has that traditional classic feel, which you get from all the adults, but then you have that angsty emotional that you get from all the young kids. Absolutely, absolutely, you know. Um, okay, backing up, the costumes. They're beautiful, they're simple, 
But okay, so to get the point across, they they got the point across without having to over glitz or glamour it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this didn't have to be over the top costumes, and it also didn't have to be super time period historic costumes. No, the girls were in all simple like frock dresses. The boys were all in schoolboy costumes, and then. If memory serves me right, and I'm pretty sure there's just two adults, and these two adult actors, let's say, right, they played all the adults in it, and they were the costumes were, you know, you had uh, a, the man who was basically in a black costume the entire time and just switched hats or jackets, whether he was the teacher, the headmaster, or a father, or the doctor, and then you had the woman who played like the piano teacher, the mother. Um, the other mother. The other mother. <laughs> and she, I think, just changed, like, a jacket, too, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so simple, and it worked so well. Um, and the, um, this is one thing, and, and I had to do, again, go back and look at pictures and that, but the simple colors were used to separate the colors. Or the characters. <laughs> colors to separate the colors. Simple colors were used to separate the characters. And this went from the costume to the hair. Hair was a really defining factor as well. Mm-hmm. So the girls who had brighter colors were more adult or more controversial. Like the redhead. Was Ilsa. Mm-hmm. Or Vendela was in a blue dress, if you remember, a baby blue dress. Um, and with the boys, the more wavy and relaxed their hair was, the more controversial they were. So... Melchior had this wavy, like, almost like a, I don't want to say like a shag, but you know, that wavy longer hair. Mm-hmm. And that then, romantic wavy long hair. The next two I would say that are most controversial were Hanschel and um, Ernst, the, the two gay lovers. And they just had this, it was relaxed. There wasn't much to it. The person who had the most, I say, hair was done the most, was the most uptight person, which was Moritz. And his hair reflected that. It was almost like that 90s box, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and you saw that. But everybody had a separate color. Everybody had a separate color palette. And also I felt like one thing we didn't talk about in the plot is everybody's broken on stage. Everybody. And, and I mean, I'm not saying that like if, if you're... If you're gay or you're experimenting or whatever, that makes you broken. But everyone in the sense of the story has a flaw or is broken. And ergo, everyone's entitled to something different. So Ilsa and her sister, who were abused by their father, have similar colored dresses and similar colored hair. I mean, obviously, they're going to have similar colored hair because they're sisters, but their dresses are similar. And I think that's... That's very important because you can tell kind of it's kind of going back to Les Mis when we were talking about sins. You can see what different sins of their family are, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like the fact that Vendel is in baby blue, it's very innocent. She's naive and she's innocent. Mm-hmm. And that's her sin. You know, and I, I think that's just clever without being clever. You know, um, the choreography was brilliant. 
Brilliant. It was very energetic, yet also very mellow when it needed to be. It was just, it was accurate. It was it complimented. It went so well with the lyrics of the song. So the, well. The bitch of living. Oh my gosh. It was explosive without being explosive. You know what I mean? Like it was, mm-hmm. it was, there were tiny movements that really just. Show that inner anger trying to come out. It really helped amplify the mood and the meaning of the moment. And it brought the moment just to where it needed to be without going too far. You know? Um, Let's talk about the direction. I think it was an absolute masterpiece. This is a masterclass in subtext as well as subtlety. Well, um, I mean, I don't know if this was done intentionally, but um, after... Like, before we had seen this, um, we had studied uh, Anne Bogart's uh, viewpoints. viewpoints. yeah. And so being able to, s- like, see stuff like that happening in the direction and in the action of the show was just beautiful. Every moment on, or every movement on stage was made with intention. And it was made to further some story or motive. Like, there was dialogue spoken, but then there was, like, dialogue done with each motion as well. Right. Well, especially, I mean, think about it. This is literally a show about repressed emotion. Yeah. I'm, that, and thinking about how that repressed emotion affects things physically. And we're going to jump ahead to a fun fact. Well, this this note, hold on to this, to this moment because I'm going to bring it back later on when we talk about some fun facts. But this is really important to remember, the fact that movement was used as dialogue as well. It's just, that was profound. It's a brilliantly told story of the struggle of adolescence through all lenses. And I thought that was brilliant in the direction. Straight, gay, in love, out of love, abused, whatever. We saw love through every lens. You know, it was painted the whole palette was right up there on the stage. And I mean, that Spring Awakening is a true musical about love in all facets. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to understand what love is mm-hmm. at such a young and Yes, big, well, because are age. we talking about, are we talking about intimate love? Are we talking about um, parental love? Are we talking about paternal love? Like, paternal you know those are the same thing yeah yeah but you know what i mean like um what's the word i'm thinking of um infatuation or um emotional or uh, are you thinking of like the friend yes i can't remember what the word is right now platonic love i got you yeah and this show in the with the direction also allowed us to question us us as parents and our methods you know, mm-hmm. or doing let right us... by our kid. We want to protect our kids so much from the evils in the world, but our actions... Are we trying to protect them from something they need to know? Because it's it's like what's going on with the coronavirus right now. You know, young children need to know that Maybe it's there. Right? I'm like, not going to get into that. I might But you know what fire. I mean? Like, there, <laughs> there are certain things that even... Well, or even not even... Like, little kids know that earthquakes happen yeah. so that they can prepare for them. But you hope that they don't happen. Lastly, the music. The only word I can think of, really, to best describe this, is haunting. Yes, there's just the 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 space that happens within the music is just the sound, just the it speaks to your soul when you close your eyes and you like hear this music. 
mm-hmm. you can just I hear mean, this empty room and you can just the sound fills it up and it's not a huge orchestra. No. But it's it's full. Mm-hmm. Well, like Mama Who Bore Me, like that whole song is just haunting, but you're watching you're watching Vendela look at herself in a mirror and try to understand her body mm-hmm. through this conversation and through this song and that that sadness and curiosity peeks through the music just so beautifully and most of it is all through sung and that violin yeah and yeah there were anthems in the show like the bitch of living or totally fucked but there were other songs that haunt you like i believe or the song of purple summer or the mirror blue light and you know they're these these other songs aren't anthems like if you're not listening to them or you don't know them in context it can almost become like a gregorian chant in the background Mm-hmm. Like it well, really, I don't want to say it blends in with the paint, but it can just lull you like that. That's the power it has to lull you. Mm-hmm. Well, and it takes you to a place. Exactly. Like, yeah, it yeah, takes yeah, you yeah. to a place emotionally. It doesn't you bore you, but it just. Yeah. Like, I mean, thinking of the song of Purple Summer, it literally takes me to, you know, the last couple summers of my adolescence and just yeah. remembering what that felt like and realizing, like, realizing now that I was so naive back then that I didn't realize that they were the last summers that would be like that. We all woke up one day and went outside to play together for the last time, but we didn't know it. (laughs) Right. I mean, if you want to get even like darker with that, think about, you know, you didn't know that the last time your parents picked you up was going to be the last time your parents picked you up. Right. I also love that the orchestra was on stage and part of the show itself. They became characters in the show. They weren't just, you know, we're going to, you know, there's some shows where like the, the orchestra is on the stage and they're just there and they'll put them in costumes so that they're not just like in black, like standing out. But they were actually in the show and acted as characters too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, really great. Like, you know, we had seen something similar to this in, in, in the production of Company where the cast is the orchestra or in Sweeney Todd when the cast is the orchestra. But now it's like, well, no, the orchestra is going to be in the cast too. Mm-hmm. Th- and I thought it was great. The show has had several notable cast members, including Skylar Austin for Gregor, Jonathan Groff as Melchior, Leah Michelle as Vendela, Lily Cooper as Marta, John uh, John Gallagher Jr., Moritz, uh, Jennifer Demio, Demiano, sorry, Damiano, Damiano uh, she swung in on the show. Uh, Krista Rodriguez was a swing, and Hunter Parrish had also played Mer- Melchior. In 2015, the show was revived on Broadway by Deaf West Theatre Company. It was put on at the Brooks Atkinson Theatre, uh, it was reimagined and performed simultaneously in English and American Sign Language. It featured such names as Krista Rodriguez, Patrick Page, and Ali Stoker. And this is where I wanted to mention, remember when we talked about previously how all the movements and actions on stage kind of had, like, there was its own dialogue with that? This is, this revival, you know, incorporating with Deaf West Theater, so it's being done simultaneously in sign language i wish we could have seen that because mm-hmm. the fact that every movement also said something could you imagine like mm-hmm. that that's got to amplify it 10 times so oh
So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on theater and its history, which I think is a great piggyback from the uh, Deaf West Theater Company inclusion. Like, once that came out, I just want to say that, like, it, everything that I saw from it was like, oh my gosh, the show was meant to be done that way. You know? I mean, the only show I can think of previously that incorporated um, uh, the hearing impaired would be um, Children of a Lesser God. You know, um, the, the, that was amazing to me. I, I don't think theater should be out of reach with people who are differently abled. And I think the, the fact that they revised it in this way showed that. Any show is accessible to anyone. and Well, and they're know. all stories that everyone can relate to. Absolutely. No matter what your experience is in life. We're all human and we all go through similar experiences. The show broke ground on, on, on regards to subject matter. Right. Well, because it's something that's not new. Like we've talked about, like this concept of not getting the birds and the bees conversation. Um, and the fact that not only are we talking about it, but also we're singing about it and writing a hit show about it. And actually showing the act of. Mm-hmm. And the discovery of emotions. Yeah. It changed up the staging of a show, too. I mean, we were the show brought the audience on the stage. The, the seats were on the stage. Um, and it incorporated the show into the cast. And we see remnants of this idea in other shows like Once and Hades Town and Xanadu. I mean, you know, suddenly the fourth wall didn't just exist at the proscenium. It was like, now we can bring you in up here as well. And the theater became more of. I don't want to say an inclusive, immersive is what I'm immersive, going for. Immersive, yeah. yeah. Because it's like, well, you can't hide behind that fourth wall. You can't hide, use the fourth wall to hide from the emotions that we're well, experiencing. I don't, I don't think they were trying to hide either. It was, or no, you mean the audience? Audience, yeah. yeah. No, it was the, I think company did it the first time where it was like the audiences were going to the theater to escape the problems of their life. And Stephen Sondheim was like, just kidding. Here's everything that you've been dealing with in your, your daily life. And now with Spring Awakening, they were like, yeah, we're going to make you uncomfortable and make sure you can't necessarily look away. Yeah. You know, going on to the societal impact, the social impact. We've been saying this, but it held up a mirror to ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we raising our kids? How are we addressing social issues? Well, and even if you're not a parent, like, what would you do as a parent if that happened? Like, yeah. you know, you can sit there and you can think about yourself from uh, Vendela's perspective, but you could also think about it from the perspective of her mother. Yeah. You know, and it just gave you a lot to think about. Absolutely. And it challenged the modern Broadway audience. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in the subject matter, in the staging, and the things you were listening to and hearing. I mean, look, the modern Broadway audience, this wasn't the first time that we'd heard the fuck word, but now we had an entire show. Didn't someone count how many times the fuck, fuck was written in the, yeah. Yeah, in the song, you know? Um, the, the third song on the show is The Bitch of Living. You know, this, they weren't being coy about what they were trying to do. And like I said, they're, the end of Act 1 and the beginning of Act 2 start the exact same. Um, you know, we see Vendela and Melchior full-on having sex. I mean, the end of Act 1, Melchior rips open Vendela's shirt, exposing everything. Vendela pulls down Melchior's pants. You see his butt. 
We don't see the front part of their lower halves, but, you know, and then they go at it in the hayloft. Well, and, and we've it's not like this is the first time we've seen nudity on stage, but this is the first time we saw the innocence of the act of sex. Well, yeah, you saw the actual act of sex. The, well, and you saw the animalistic type, too, right. because it was like they were just following their instincts. This was about as close to porn as you got, if you will. Like, it was softcore porn on stage in the sense of we didn't actually see... Forgive me, listeners. You didn't see penetration. But you basically, you fill in the blanks there. You know what I mean? We hadn't seen carnal lust at this level on the stage. Mm-hmm. This was, There was no sheet covering it, you know. There was no, like, this isn't Rent where we're doing artistic movement this to show that we're having where sex. where we all just came out naked in protest. No, this, 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 isn't this, this wasn't artistic nudity. This was... Like you said, animalistic. And that challenged a modern audience. But but I also think it's like, okay, because who among us in this audience never had these feelings well, and or who, never participated? Who, who, like, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, that just takes me back to, you know, feeling those feelings and how that first time happens. Yeah. Um. It really pushed the envelope on what we will and will not talk about on stage. And what I'm thinking about is, you know, in West Side Story, we first dealt with the subject of rape. Anita gets raped. In Company, we were discussing things like marital uh, troubles and affairs and that. Now we're talking about, you know, abortions. (laughs) We're talking about premarital and teenage sex we're talking about homosexuality we're talking about we're talking about suicide suicide, child abuse yeah and and i mean these were happening in plays but like never in a musical yeah musicals i mean think about it think about the origin of musicals you know we were musicals were once called musical comedies this is a heavy musical drama Mm-hmm. You know, where parents are being so distant and not comforting and where kids are comforting each other. So this really pushed the envelope and being like, no, nah, I think we're going to talk about this issue I, now. I'm like, let's talk about it. And now we're addressing, like, you know, we said all these issues and 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 really put him in the forefront and starting the conversation. So that leads us to, is the show relevant? And I say yes. I say always because... I mean, as long as there are humans procreating, this story will happen. Well, um, I think, yes, because these issues still exist and are ever-present. And we have to address them and face them. The fact that we have a rising, we have rising cases of suicide in young people, particularly young people in the LGBTQ uh, plus community. The fact that we have, you know, for lack of a better term, slut-shaming going on especially among young girls, unwed mothers, if you will, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, more importantly, I think the show needs to come back in order to hold up that mirror again and go, just remember, everybody, there's two parts to this equation, not one. And maybe if you told both parts the whole story... Right, like you your daughters should be told just as much as your sons should be told about any of this. Just like your sons should be told about how female reproductive systems work because they need to know, goddammit. And we shouldn't outcast people. You know, and we should... The biggest thing that bothers... Actually, you know, Moritz's suicide upsets me. Vendela's death upsets me. And the relationship between her and Melchior upset me, right? Mm-hmm. And even, I will say, there's a borderline disturbingness about Melchior whipping 
Vendela, even though she wants it. It's a little like, ooh, this is dark. In a well, bad, but she had just talked about how her father... Her friend's father. father has abused her. And she her. wants to feel that. And it's like... Well, she wants to feel what her friend was feeling. Right, but like how much of like... It shows the darkness of Melchior. Well, not just that, but like, I mean... This this might be very controversial, but like how many of us have kinks based on unresolved issues that we just don't want to talk about? Well, yeah. And so, oh, no what kink shaming. what no, no, no kink shaming <laughs> oh, no, at no, all, well, but like, yeah. you know, like how does those thi- how do these things come about? And I think that it becomes from a taboo place. So the fact that, you know, Vendel is like, "Here, hit me with this." It's like, you know, it it it's almost that's a physical representation of people who get into abusive relationships, like verbally abusive relationships, because they're like, oh, well, I have it so easy, so maybe I deserve this. You know, I feel like that's kind of what was going through Vendela's mind. and But how those kind of thoughts just come about because they come from a place of wanting to understand what other people are going through. Well, where I was going is, you know, that, that scene also upsets me, but the thing that most actually upsets me about this show is actually um, Ilsa... And her mm-hmm. sister's situation, the fact that her their father essentially is raping them. And, 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 and Elsa and, gets and kicked the out. the fact that, yeah, and, and they get kicked out and they can't go to anyone. One, because they'll, they'll be kicked, you know, the, do- the second daughter will be kicked out. But more importantly, who will believe them? And in this era of Me Too and not believing victims, I'm just like, this show is more important than ever if... Not for anything else to show. We have to start believing victims. We have to start believing well, women. Well, why would we... someone make that up if they're going to receive the harsh end of it, too? Yeah, I mean, it, this is such a um, comment on society. And the fact that, you know, this show was done uh, 12 years ago is when it last played. I'm just like, it's time to bring it back because I don't feel like necessarily we've made much growth since then. And it's based on a play from the 1850s and how much growth have we made 1850s to 2007. So just saying. I mean, personally, and I'm sorry, this is also very controversial, but guess what? That's what this episode is. It's our podcast. We can (laughs) do what we want. Um, I personally think that every single uh, Utah needs to see this show. Because it says fuck? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, because it's like I have when I saw this, like all I could think of when I when I first saw this because I was you know fresh out of high school or in high school, I can't remember. You were out of high school. I was like, you know, how many of my friends do I know who like? Because I felt like Melchior in the sense of like I had all this information, but and none all your of friends my knew friends that. had it. Yeah, and I'm like, how do you not have this information? Let me share it with you. But then I'm the bad guy right. because I'm trying to. And they're all trying to send you away and don't come to here and spread your no nonsense. Yeah, it's a story, and, and the story is depressing as it is. It's still beautiful and a beautiful human tragedy, and that's why it's worthy and important and it needs to be told because tragedies deserve to be told too yeah As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. 
So I've seen the show twice, once on Broadway back in 2008, and then once here in Salt Lake City at Kingsbury Hall in 2011. And I have seen the show only in 2011 at Kingsbury Hall. So, my Broadway story, um, when I saw the show back in 2008, I went with a good friend of mine, uh, his name is Alex Watson. Currently shooting his first film, Bundy Manor. Finally got the money, so shout out to him. Yeah. Um, anyway, he that summer, it was right before he was about to go on his mission. His LDS mission. His LDS mission. And I, look, I didn't really know the whole story of Spring Awakening. We had just seen it on the Tonys. And I was like, I hear good things about it. We should probably go see the show. So, me not knowing what the show is about, of course, we get in the third song, The Bitch of Living. And I was like, oh, man. Oh, man. Well, it's okay. A little bit of swearing can't hurt him because there's swearing everywhere. But we roll up into the end of Act 1. <laughs> and the minute Melchior rips open Vendela's blouse and my hand shoots over right across his eyes. And all I'm thinking is, you have a mission you have to go on. You can't see this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, and I still even remember, like, I wasn't even there, but you called me afterwards because you were like, I saw her boobs and I'm so sorry. Like, that was, you know, you, you felt I like you had uncomfortable. Yeah, you felt like you had betrayed my trust. It, this, is the, this is the first show I ever saw that really made me uncomfortable. Um, but we got to meet the cast afterwards and that was cool. So, you know, John Gallagher Jr. And, um, oh, man. His name is leaving Jonathan me. Groff. Thank you. I was like, I can see his face. You know, so that was really, really cool. Uh, we both saw the show here in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the second time I went, and I was a little bit hesitant because I was like, I was so uncomfortable seeing it the first but time. But I was like, I need to see the show. So we went, and I was more moved the, the, the second time. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. This is so much better, and I had a more emotional experience, and it, oh, it was so good. And then we met the cast afterwards again, and we got to see that the, that particular tour was actually traveling by bus as mm-hmm. they were going, which I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, that's right. rough. Um, and I guess the last story I've got is um, my university where I went to school, Go Utes. Uh, we did the show, and um, my good friend, Austin John Smith... If he's listening, shout out to you, sir. Um, he actually got to play the lead in this show, Melchior. He did a great job. In fact, the production that they put on was really, really good. Um, you know, and I'm not just saying that because that was my school. They actually really enjoyed it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell someone when I don't like their show. I'm definitely not the kind of person that shows up and it's like, yay, you are fantastic. I am that like stuffy uncle that'll show up and be like, you were terrible it was awful and it's like dude it was a fourth grade play i know and i knew it the entire time it was awful no it it was a really solid show and i was so happy he got to play that role um yeah he was really phenomenal in it as things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on we look forward to returning to see the show again you'll be able to catch spring awakening at a theater near you sometime in the near future we just want to mention as well that as things are opening up we encourage all of you to support the arts whether it be local regional or of course broadway now more than ever it is time for us to raise up and foster the performing arts wherever they may exist 
Please join us in doing your part to help the arts by re, uh, arts return by supporting a live performance near you. We ourselves have already begun this work and have a special announcement regarding this. If you haven't heard, starting October 12th of this year, we will be returning ourselves to the Great White Way. Woo, it's getting closer. And we'll be bringing you live updates from the reopening of Broadway. We will be releasing short mini episodes recapping the shows we see as we see them every evening on this date. Whether or not we've talked about the show, we'll be giving a brief glimpse into the show's reopening. Hopefully that stirs up a lot of excitement among you and maybe enough to buy a ticket and continue to support this community we all love so much. So please keep your eye on all of our social media platforms. Please engage with us um, as well as subscribe here. Well, subscribe wherever you're listening to yeah. um, for these mini episodes coming this fall. Hey, also, we want to hear from you. Come on. Send us your personal stories. We want to hear these, whether they're on stage, backstage, above the stage, wherever they're at. We want to hear about it. And please send us your stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com or send us comments saying you don't want to share your personal stories at stagewhisper at gmail.com. And in a couple of weeks, we'll start incorporating your stories into each episode unless you all decide you don't want that. And then we'll just say that. (laughs) And then we'll just keep the stories all to ourselves. (laughs) We want to thank all of you out there who are listening. We truly appreciate it. And we just want to close out this episode by giving a shout out to a couple of listeners out there. So... To those of you up there in Edmonton, Canada, Edmonton, Canada. Wow, I botched that one. <laughs> Edmonton, Canada. And in the Bay Area out there in California. Hey, we see you. Thank What's you so good? much. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Music for Wildlife by Fox. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, Peter Rudenko, Lorenzo's Music, and Billy Murray. <laughs> <laughs>